0: Crime Happens contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Crime Happens, where we uncover the evil that surrounds us. I'm your host, Chris. Christopher Newsome and Shannon Christian were carjacked, kidnapped, robbed, tortured, raped and murdered. In part two, the conclusion to the episode, The Chipman Street Murders, we will hear about the arrest, police interviews and autopsy results. On Tuesday, January 9th, 2007. After Chris's body had been found shot and set on fire next to the railroad tracks near the Chipman Street house, Cobbins, Coleman, and Thomas went to visit a friend, Vince Wernemont. They told him Davidson was acting crazy and had sexually assaulted someone. Wernemont didn't believe them. He thought Cobbins and Davidson were just having a fight. They told him they needed his help to get out of town. They weren't afraid of Davidson. They were just looking for a way to get away from the scene of the crime. Wernemont asked Jody Long to give them a ride back to Lebanon, Kentucky. Jody Long testified that in January 2007, Vince Wernemont asked her, quote, to give some friends a ride that were in fear of their life, unquote. Wernemont gave Long some money and morphine pills and asked her to drive Coleman, Cobbins and Thomas to Kentucky. Jody Long stated that Coleman rode in the passenger seat and she was very quiet. Long dropped them off at Coleman's grandmother's house. After making the arrangements for their ride, Wernemont saw on the news that two people had been murdered and he realized there may be some truth to what Cobbins was saying. To Wernemont's credit, he called the police. While he was being interviewed by the police, Cobbins called his cell phone. This is how law enforcement tracked down his location in Kentucky. On Thursday, January 11, 2007, Thomas, Cobbins and Coleman were arrested 133 miles away at Natasha Hayes' house in Lebanon, Kentucky. During the search of Mrs. Hayes' residence, the officers seized a computer on which Thomas and Cobbins had been viewing the Knoxville News coverage of the homicides online They also found a red purse that contained documents and other items belonging to Shannon. Later, a 22 caliber clerk revolver was recovered from Mrs. Hayes' house. Davidson stayed behind and hid in an abandoned house in Knoxville with Eric Boyd's help. Based on court documents, on Thursday afternoon, January 11th, 2007, the Knoxville Police Department Special Operations Team and other officers arrested Davidson in a vacant house at 1800 Reynolds Avenue. Eric Boyd led them to the house where Davidson was holed up. Among the items found in the house were Chris's size nine and a half Nike Shox athletic shoes and a 22-caliber high standard revolver. As the SWAT team grabbed Davidson, he declared that he'd done quote nothing to that girl," In an interrogation room at the Knoxville Police Department, Lamarcus Davidson is brought in for an interview. In the interview room are investigator Ryan Flores and ATF agent Woody Webb. It's January 11th, 2007 at 4.15 PM. Davidson is actually arrested for failure to appear on a prior driving charge but they're taking advantage of the situation to interview Davidson about the murders. Inspector Flores reads Davidson. His Miranda writes, Davidson agrees to speak with law enforcement without a lawyer present. Inspector Flores starts by telling Davidson that he just wants the truth. Davidson told detectives he was not part of any crimes. He said when his half-brother Cobbins showed up at the house with the forerunner and Shannon and Chris, tied up in the back, he left. Over time, Davidson gave at least five different versions of events. Here are some short excerpts from Davidson's first interview with detectives on January 11, 2007. Quote, Davidson, I don't even know what the fuck happened, all right? Flores, I just want to know what you know, all right? That's all I want is to find out what you know about what happened and let's get beyond it, all right? You wanna do that? We've spent a lot of time trying to figure it out and weren't there. We don't know we can. All we can do is guess and speculate about what happened. Davidson. So what do you think happened? Flores. That's what I, that's what we got you up here is we wanna know. Davidson. Sniff, crying sounds. Flores. And it, it's like you said, it's your house. Davidson. I don't even know what the fuck happened in my house though, man. I left the same night the girl, that the girl, when the girl came in the house, I, I mean, I, I don't give a fuck what you all say. When the girl came in the house, I left, dude. When that When that girl was in my house, I wasn't there, and that's all I got to say. I don't care if you believe me on that or not. Flores, did you ever have sex with her? Davidson, no. Flores, so we'll not find your DNA on her body, on her person? Davidson, no, 11 years after the murders, George Thomas, through Eric Boyd, under the bus. Maybe his conscience was kicking in, but I doubt it. Thomas agreed to testify against Boyd in exchange for a slightly lighter sentence that would give him a remote possibility of getting out of prison early. What he testified to may be the truth, but why didn't he just tell this truth 11 years ago? In Boyd's trial, Thomas testified that he was instructed by Davidson to go with Boyd and to take Chris with them. He claims he had no idea why Davidson would give him this order. He also states that he did not feel free to leave the premises. Thomas stated that Boyd and Davidson both had guns and were preventing him from leaving. Even though he was not threatened explicitly, he said he felt the implied threat. When Boyd and Thomas arrived at the location where Chris was ultimately shot and killed, Thomas states he never left the car. He also said that from the car, he could see three flashes of light, which he assumed were gunshots. Boyd came back to the car without Chris. Prosecutors believe that Vanessa Coleman actually held Shannon captive while all four of the guys were out murdering Chris together. After murdering Chris Newsom, the guys returned to Davidson's house where they continued to beat and repeatedly rape Shannon Christian. When Latalvis Cobbins was initially interviewed by detectives, he adamantly claimed that he did not have sexual contact with Shannon in any way, shape, or form. He said he would remember if he had had sex with someone. Eventually, he changed his story and testified that with his girlfriend Vanessa Coleman in the next room, he had Shannon perform oral sex on him. In his testimony, he stated that he told Shannon if she gave him oral sex, he would set her free. He did receive oral sex from Shannon, but he didn't set her free. Cobbins also stated that as he began to ejaculate, he heard a noise that spooked him, causing him to deposit semen on Shannon's shirt and pants. This is how he explains his semen and DNA found on Shannon's clothing and body. He said he quickly dressed himself, tied Shannon back up the way he found her, and sat in the living room with Coleman. How is it possible for Coleman to not hear or know that her boyfriend, Latalvis Cobbins, was just a few feet away from her getting oral sex? I personally wonder if Vanessa did know and became jealous of Shannon for some crazy reason and decided to punish her by inflicting a few blows herself. Even with all the evidence, interviews and testimony, we still don't know conclusively everything that happened. Meaning who did what and when. No one is ever going to confess to raping Chris Newsom, And because there was no DNA in the sperm, all we will ever know for sure is that at least one male raped him anally we will probably never know the truth of what happened to Chris or Shannon, except for what the evidence shows, because these individuals have never told anywhere near the whole truth and have never stopped lying. George Thomas testified that Shannon had both her hands and feet tied up. She was in the bedroom positioned on her back and had her hands stretched out over her head and secured to a duffel bag filled with heavy free weights the same with her feet. So she was bound very tightly and wasn't going anywhere. Vanessa Coleman stated that she, quote, saw Davidson lying beside Shannon on his bed. Davidson was using a cell phone and Coleman heard Davidson ask Shannon for a password. Coleman stated that she slept with Cobbins in the back bedroom and Thomas slept in the living room. The following morning, Thomas told Coleman that Davidson had slept with Shannon, meaning that he'd had sex with her. When Coleman saw Davidson, he was only wearing shorts. Coleman stated that Davidson left in the Forerunner several times during the day on Sunday. LaTalbus Cobbins and George Thomas checked in on Shannon throughout the day, unquote. And by checking in, does this really mean assaulting her? Detectives testified that, according to Vanessa Coleman, quote at some point coleman took a drink of water to shannon shannon was still tied up but they or somebody let her smoke cigarettes Unquote. prosecutors believe that at one point they had shannon tied to a chair while she was tied to the chair she was repeatedly orally raped by both davidson and cobbins evidence presented at trial depicts a photo of a kitchen type chair in davidson's bedroom right next to the bathroom door. Davidson's girlfriend, Daphne Sutton, confirmed that she saw this chair when she stopped by the house on Sunday, January 7th, because he had invited her over so she could collect some of her personal belongings. She confirmed that this chair was not kept there when she was living in the house, and she had never seen it in there on any of her other visits. She thought it seemed strange and out of place. While Shannon was kept in Davidson's bedroom, She was kicked and or punched repeatedly in her vagina and in her head. She was kicked so hard and so many times that her skin began to break down and a major hematoma developed in her anal genital area. A hematoma is a bruise but an extreme bruise. In this case, because there was extensive bleeding under the skin from her injuries, the blood actually collected into a large solid blood clot. The ME could not always determine which injuries came first or which ones came later because there was just too much trauma. During Davidson's interview with detectives, he said that Shannon said, quote, am I going to die? I don't want to die, unquote. But Davidson also claimed at one point that he was not in the house when Shannon was in the house. Eric Boyd was a key player in the grisly events of Saturday, January 6th and 7th. It is believed that he drove Cobbins and Davidson to the Washington Ridge Apartments. He had details about the crimes that had not been released to the media. Bullets were found in the vehicle that Boyd had borrowed from his cousin, Nicole Mathis, and Mathis denied any knowledge of the bullets. Boyd went out of his way to help Davidson hide from the police. He tried to find transportation for Davidson and himself so they could flee the area. Boyd helped Davidson even though he knew he was involved in a serious carjacking, rape, and murder. Others that knew about Davidson's involvement or even suspected refused to help him. In fact, his own cousin, Kevin Armstrong, tried to convince Davidson to turn himself in and refused to give him a ride to a different location. More of the truth was revealed over time, but it seems clear that all five of these individuals are still lying and still pointing the finger at each other. Not a single one of them has ever given a straight story. There was enough information and evidence to arrest and convict these individuals, but despite all the interviews, trials, appeals, it doesn't look like the full truth will ever be known. Within days of Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom disappearing, Shannon was found dead in a garbage can inside the kitchen of 2316 Chipman Street. And Chris's body was found next to railroad tracks that ran right behind 2316 Chipman Street. What happened to Chris and Shannon is absolutely horrible. Their autopsies were performed by Dr. Malusnik Polchin. Based on the autopsy reports for Chris and Shannon, they had no defensive wounds and their stomach contents were empty. So obviously they didn't make it to dinner. Dr. Malusnik-Polchan testified in all five trials and in the subsequent appeals. The following is taken from the autopsy reports as transcribed in court documents from each of the trials. The results from Christopher Newsom's autopsy are as follows. Chris was anally penetrated one to two hours before he died. He had significant injuries to his anal genital area with lacerations, tearing, and bruising around his anus. The injuries in his anal area are consistent with an injury sustained from a blunt object being forced inside his anus. Based upon the tissue reaction to the damage, Dr. Malusnik-Polchan estimated that the injuries to his anus occurred a couple of hours before his death. Chris Newsom was shot three times, each time with a small caliber bullet. One bullet was shot from at least two to three feet away and entered his body in the neck area between the back of the neck and the shoulder. The second shot was to his lower back and the bullet traveled steeply upward, indicating he was bent over when the weapon was fired. This shot severely damaged Chris's spinal cord and would have disabled Chris, causing him to lose control of his lower extremities. The fatal shot was fired with the muzzle of the gun against his head above his right ear, severing his brain stem and causing instantaneous death. All three bullets were still lodged in Chris's body when it was found. Chris had a hematoma on his right forehead, indicating that he was struck with an object or fell and hit his head on the ground, possibly when he was shot while bending over. When the fatal shot was fired, Chris's head was wrapped in a gray hooded sweatshirt, a blue bandana was tied around his eyes, and a blood-stained ankle sock was rolled up, stuffed in his mouth, and secured with a shoelace. His leather belt and some floral fabric were wrapped around his ankles, securing them together. Some plant material was found in the bindings. His wrists were tied together behind his back with a shoelace and some nylon. He had on a shirt, a t-shirt, underwear, and no other clothing. His feet were bare and muddy, indicating that he had walked barefoot to the area where he was killed. He was placed on his back. A comforter was wrapped around his body. An accelerant was poured over him, and he was set on fire. His face, head, and upper body were burned the worst. Chris's anus had semen in it, but the high temperature of the fire destroyed the DNA in the semen. Soil samples taken where Chris's body was found indicated the presence of gasoline, a gasoline can was found in the kitchen of Mr. Davidson's house. Due to the absence of Chris's blood anywhere other than on the items surrounding his head, and no evidence of the body being dragged at the scene, Dr. Malusnik-Polchan stated it was likely Chris was shot where his body was found. From the extensiveness of the methods used to bind and gag Chris and the severity of the injuries he sustained, Dr. Malusnik-Polchan found it hard to believe that just one person would do all of that. Dr. Malusnik-Polchan testified that Chris's body was discovered on Sunday, January 7, 2007, and she conducted the autopsy the following day, January 8th. She noted that there was no indication of postmortem autolysis, which is the breakdown of cells, or decomposition indicating that Chris's death occurred within 12 hours of discovery, unquote. Dr. Malusnik-Polchan went to the scene to view Shannon Christian's body in the context of the crime scene. She had completed the autopsy on Chris Newsom and knew that the two deaths were most likely related. For this reason, she wanted to see the actual crime scene. She noted the following regarding Shannon's condition as she was found in the garbage can in the kitchen. Quote, the shoulder area was visible, but the body was inside five different large garbage bags and then placed inside the trash bin. On top of the body were various pieces of bedding and curtain. In the interest of preserving the evidence, it was determined that the body should be transported as it was found inside the trash bin. The lid was replaced. The trash bin was placed in a tarp and then transported to the medical examiner's office, The medical examiner, Dr. Malusnik-Polchan, testified in all of the trials for each of the defendants. And in one of these trials, she was actually seen discreetly wiping away tears. When the medical examiner is wiping away tears, you know, it's brutal. The results from Shannon Christian's autopsy are as follows. Shannon's frenulum, the membrane that connects the lip to the gum, was torn. She had bruises and abrasions around her mouth. These injuries occurred hours before her death and were caused by an object, such as a penis, being forced into her mouth. One to two hours before Shannon's death, her anal genital area suffered tremendous damage. Her vaginal area had bruises, lacerations, contusions, and swelling, and a solid blood clot had formed under the entire area. The depth and extent of her injury was so grave, it was not caused by a regular rate, but caused by a blunt object coming in contact with her genital area with sufficient force to inflict serious injury. She stated that this type of injury indicates heavy, blunt force injuries more severe than that found with a regular rape situation. The damage to Shannon's vaginal area was more consistent with being caused by an object rather than a penis. The injuries to Shannon's anus were also consistent with an object being forced in and out of the anus due to the significant tearing in the area. She had bruises on the backs of both arms bruising on both sides of the top of her head with extensive hemorrhaging, bruises on the front of her legs, deep bruising to her upper back close to her neck, and carpet burns and scratches to her lower back and upper buttocks. She also had a cut to her right hand that occurred right around the time of death. With regard to her head injuries, Dr. Malusnik-Polchan testified that she found areas of bruising under Shannon's scalp that indicated a couple of substantial hits to the head causing blunt force trauma. Shannon had been forced into a tight fetal position and then bound with her head, neck, and shoulder twisted and pressed against her bent knees. Her left cheek had been pressed tightly against her knee. This created pressure marks on the left side of her face. She noted that Shannon's eyes remained open and had gray discoloration That can be found in deaths involving a slow dying process. A portion of sheer curtain had been tied around her ankles and wrapped around her neck. A floral fabric like the one used to bind Chris had been tied around her thighs bringing them tightly against her chest. A white plastic bag had been placed over her head covering her mouth and nose and knotted in the back to keep it in place. Her body had been put in five plastic garbage bags, stuffed into a large garbage can, and partially covered with bedding, sheets, and other bags. She was dressed only in a camisole and a sweater. Because she couldn't breathe with the plastic bag tied tightly over her face, and due to her positioning in the confined space, she suffocated to death. Dr. Malusnik-Polchan testified that the lividity or settling of the blood in the body after death and the unusual pattern of skin detachment indicated that Shannon had been in the bin for longer than 24 hours. The time of her death was estimated to be sometime between Sunday afternoon and Monday afternoon. Based on the plastic bag that covered her face and her positioning inside the garbage can, the oxygen around her face would have been depleted within 10 to 30 minutes after she was placed in the garbage can and she would have died three to five minutes later. There was no evidence of strangulation. The cause of death was positional asphyxiation. The fabric found with Chris's body and the fabric used to bind Shannon in the garbage bag were parts of the curtains and bedding that Ms. Freeman had sold to Mr. Davidson. Dr. Malusnik-Polchan testified that, based on her findings, it is likely that Shannon died sometime between late Sunday afternoon January 7, 2007 and early Monday morning January 8, 2007. She stated that her findings were consistent with Chris Newsom's death occurring at around 1:45 a.m. on Sunday, January 7, 2007. In addition to the gruesome autopsy results, DNA Fingerprint and ballistic evidence was also collected. DNA analysis revealed the presence of spermatozoa and sperm fragments in Shannon Christian's mouth, vagina, anus, and on various items of her clothing. Lamarcus Davidson and Latalvis Cobbins were later determined to be the contributors of that DNA. Davidson's DNA from sperm was found in Shannon's vagina, anus, and on her jeans. Cobbin's DNA from sperm was found in Shannon's mouth and on her camisole, sweater, and jeans. Before killing her, in an effort to remove DNA evidence, Shannon's attackers poured bleach down her throat and scrubbed her body, including her bleeding, battered genital area. They did this while she was still alive. Based on court documents, Knoxville Police Department Firearms Examiner Patricia M. Rezik performed the testing of guns, bullets, and shells. Her testing revealed that two bullets removed from Chris's body were fired from the same gun. The third bullet was too damaged, so the gun that had fired it could not be identified. The bullets could have been fired from the high-standard revolver that was in Davidson's possession when he was arrested. Shell casings found at Davidson's house matched the bullets used to kill Newsom. The jury could infer from Ms. Rezik's testimony that the high standard revolver was the weapon used to shoot Chris. This is because test bullets and the bullets from Chris's body shared class characteristics. The clerk revolver associated with Mr. Cobbins was eliminated as the murder weapon. Investigators with the Knoxville Police Department were able to process a latent fingerprint found on a bank envelope inside of Shannon's Forerunner. The fingerprint was later identified as belonging to Lamarcus Davidson. His prints were also found on three of the five plastic garbage bags that contained Shannon's body. His palm print was found on the outermost exterior bag. This print was consistent with Davidson using his hand to lift the bag with weight in it. Davidson's right palm and two left palm prints were on the next garbage bag and the third garbage bag bore his palm print. Davidson's fingerprints were also on items belonging to Shannon and Chris that were found in his house, including a pay stub with Shannon's name on it, a blockbuster card, a trash bag box, a nine millimeter magazine, and photographs that had been in her vehicle. Davidson's prints were also on a box of brawny garbage bags in the kitchen All of these items were recovered from the residence at 2316 Chipman Street. On cross-examination, Mr. Crenshaw testified that fingerprints found on the items at the crime scene were also matched to Latalvis Cobbins. What these people did to Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom is enough to make anyone cringe. The brutality is so difficult to comprehend And the reason for the brutality is incomprehensible. From day one, the families of Shannon and Chris have suffered enormously. So how could this possibly get any worse? Well, it got worse in January of 2011 when the presiding judge, Judge Baumgartner, announced he was stepping down due to an opiate and alcohol addiction. Judge Baumgartner was the judge to oversee all of the initial trials in the case. Judge Baumgartner resigned and pleaded guilty to misconduct. He was disbarred and died seven years later. Judge Baumgartner's behavior almost resulted in all of the convictions being overturned. The families were beside themselves with frustration and anger while all of this was playing out. Wait.com reported, quote, Court watchers first got a clue that something was wrong at the end of Vanessa Coleman's trial. The judge was slurring his words and sounding sleepy as he led the jury through the charges." Ranker.com reported the following was said about Judge Baumgartner. Throughout the Christian Newsom trials, he was reportedly incoherent. Because of this, the new judge, John Blackwood, tried to overturn the convictions of Davidson Thomas, Cobbins, and Coleman. The prosecutors appealed the decision on behalf of the Christian and Newsom families, unquote. Ultimately, the state Supreme Court ruled that because there was DNA evidence in the Davidson and Cobbins convictions, the sentences would stand, but new trials for Thomas and Coleman were ordered. A key element in these cases turned on Tennessee's criminal responsibility law. If you're aware of a crime and do nothing to stop it, you're held responsible too. Except for Boyd. All of the suspects implicated themselves by admitting that they were in the house on 2316 Chipman Street. Among the questions that emerged with regard to Coleman was whether she was a willing participant in the crime or held against her will. Vanessa Coleman's journal was recovered by law enforcement and based on court documents. Quote, the two journal entries written by Coleman on January 8th and 9, 2007, the two days following the victim's death, state in part, Life is interesting and full of surprises, even very unexpected things that you don't expect. Crazy! Let's talk about adventures. I had one hell of an adventure since I've been in the big TN. It's a crazy world these days, but I love the fun adventures and the lessons I've learned. From these writings, the jury could reasonably infer that Coleman knowingly furnished substantial assistance to her co-defendants in the commission of murder, aggravated kidnapping, rapes, and misdemeanor theft. The jury could infer that Coleman facilitated the commission of the crimes with fervor and excitement." The courts again found both Coleman and Thomas guilty but with lesser charges in Coleman's case. In November of 2012, Vanessa Coleman was found guilty of facilitating a deadly carjack and kidnap, but her sentence was reduced from 53 years to 35 years. The courts increased Thomas's punishment and gave him two consecutive life sentences. Six months later, Thomas's sentence was reduced to life with the possibility of parole after 51 years. In 2007, a grand jury indicted Latalvis Darnell Cobbins, LaMarcus Deval Davidson, George Giovanni Thomas, and Vanessa Lynn Coleman on counts of kidnapping, robbery, rape, and murder. On April 16, 2008, Eric Boyd was found guilty in federal court of being an accessory to a fatal carjacking and of failing to report the location of a known fugitive. Boyd was the first to go to trial and the only suspect not charged with murder. He was sentenced to the maximum of 18 years in federal prison. Years later, in 2019, Boyd was accused by Thomas Ann Cobbins of the rape and murder of Chris Newsom. On August 13, 2019, A jury found Boyd guilty of premeditated first-degree murder and rape against both victims, Chris Newsom and Shannon Christian. He was also convicted on charges of carjacking, robbery, and kidnapping. He received two life sentences plus 90 years in prison. He is incarcerated at the Federal Correctional Institute Beckley, a medium-security prison near Beaver, West Virginia. On August 25, 2009, Latalvis D. Cobbins was found guilty of the murders of Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsome. Cobbins faced the possibility of the death penalty because he was convicted of first-degree felony murder in the murder of Shannon. He was found guilty of facilitation of murder for Chris Newsom, but he was acquitted of Chris's rape. On August 26, Cobbins was sentenced to life without parole. He is currently serving his life sentence without parole at the Northwest Correctional Complex. On October 28, 2009, Lamarcus Davidson was found guilty. The jurors unanimously agreed that Davidson should receive the death penalty on the four capital charges, two first-degree felony murder charges and the two premeditated first-degree murders of Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom. Davidson was sentenced to death by lethal injection. In June 2010, Davidson was sentenced to 80 years for the other charges related to the murders. This sentence is to be served consecutively to the death penalties, while the death sentences are also consecutive. Davidson is currently incarcerated at the Riverbend Maximum Security Institution. On December 8, 2009, George Thomas was found guilty on all counts, including the ones other defendants were acquitted of, despite his case being based solely on circumstantial evidence and testimony. Thomas was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole on each of the four capital convictions. Thomas is serving a 50 year sentence at the Northeast Correctional Complex. His sentence ends in May, 2053. The convictions of Boyd, Cobbins, Davidson, and Thomas left Vanessa Coleman as the last defendant to face trial. Coleman's case is complicated by the fact that while she was granted immunity by federal authorities for testimony in the federal case on the carjacking, the state courts have ruled that the federal grant of immunity does not extend to the state charges on murder and rape. On May 13, 2010, Coleman was acquitted of first-degree murder, but found guilty on lesser charges. On July 30th, 2010, she was sentenced to 53 years behind bars. Coleman and Thomas were granted new trials after Judge Baumgartner was disbarred. In their retrials, the courts found them both guilty, but with lesser charges in Coleman's case. In November 2012, Vanessa Coleman was found guilty of facilitating a deadly carjack and kidnapping. But her sentence was reduced from 53 years to 35 years. The courts increased Thomas's punishment and gave him two consecutive life sentences. But six months later, Thomas's sentence was reduced to life without the possibility of parole after 51 years. Vanessa Coleman, the only female charged and convicted in the crimes, is held at Tennessee Prison for Women, now known as the Deborah K. Johnson Rehabilitation Center in Nashville. She's serving a 35 year sentence and her sentence expires on April 18, 2036. In August, 2014, the families of the victims were notified that with good behavior, Coleman's sentence was being reduced by 16 days per month of incarceration, making her eligible for parole consideration in October of 2014. At the December 2014 hearing, Coleman was denied parole and her next parole consideration date was set for December 2020. Coleman again went before a parole board on December 8, 2020. Shannon and Chris's mothers and Shannon's father gave statements to the board opposing parole. The seven members of the board voted unanimously to deny parole for Coleman and to ensure that she would not be eligible to go before a parole board again for 10 years. And with that, court is adjourned. I hope to see you back here very soon on Crime Happens. (sighs)